Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gaomago land by me, Leah Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is generously supported by Uniting Mission and Education, and you should check out their upcoming Preach Fest uh, happening in the first week of June. Information is in the show notes. Today I'm joined, I'm very excited to be joined by Anne LV. Anne, welcome along. Oh, thanks, Liam. Uh, um, Anne, oh, sorry, go on. Oh. Oh, I was just going to say that I'm joining you from Bunwarung Country on um, in Bayside, Melbourne, Nam. So, um, yes. and I want to acknowledge the um, owners, mm. traditional owners, Bunwarung people, and lands and waters around here. Thank you for that. Um, so, for those who don't know, Anne, Anne is a poet, a researcher, and an editor. And she is the Adjunct Research Fellow, School of Languages, Literatures, Cultures and Linguistics at Monash University and an Honorary Researcher at the University of Divinity in Melbourne, Australia, my Almada. And her most recent book that we are talking about today is Reading the Magnificat in Australia, Unsettling Engagements, which is out now through Sheffield Phoenix Press. And you can pick that up and get your library to pick it up and that is you're, you're going to know why through this conversation. So, and how about just to start with, just to wade into the book, just talk to us a little bit just about, you know, what generated this idea, what got you thinking about this idea of exploring reading the Magnificat in Australia, where, what kind of developed, uh, where this kind of developed from? Okay. Um, well, a couple of things. Uh, I suppose I generally have been working in biblical studies for a while in um, ecological and feminist kind of approaches. Um, and my my PhD thesis, which was back in the late 90s, um, was on an ecological feminist reading of the Gospel of Luke. Mm. And then after that I worked on, um, I was interested in the new materialism and how that connected with text and so I work, wrote a book called The Matter of the Text, Material mm. Engagements Between Luke and the Five Senses. So I've been working with Luke's gospel and as my poetry writing developed, I got more interested in looking at the poetic texts, so the Magnificat, Benedictus. Mm. So I also have just a single paper on the Benedictus um, looking at it in conversation with some of Beirut's Buchani's writing, particularly yeah. about their nonviolent resistance. I think it was November, October, November mm. 2017, I think, if I'm correct, um, when they were forced to move um, yeah. from one regional processing centre to another, to another place on Manus Island. So, um, so I suppose I'm interested in how we can read texts in our contemporary context and perhaps pushing the boundaries of what biblical interpretation can be um, and wanting to honour that biblical interpretation is not just done by scholars but that artists and writers yep. um, often coming out of what we would now maybe call a sort of secular <laughs> contexts um, are interpreting biblical texts, not just referencing them, but even in mm. referencing mm. biblical texts, it's a form of interpretation. So 
initially I started with looking at, well, I thought I'd focus on local context and where have these texts been interpreted in Australia. So the initial paper I wrote for this was what is now Chapter 2 and it was um, part of a project on ecological aspects of war at the time. Mm. And I found this short story written that was published in the West Australian um, in January 1939, just mm. before the start of um, the Second World War. Um, it was a short story by a Western Australian um, settler, author, um, Henrietta Drake Brockman. So, I, and that was really interesting because the story itself which she titled Magnificat and referenced bits of the Magnificat in it. And um, she was a protest at the impending war. Mm. So, it, and, and recent scholarship on the Magnificat by people like um, Barbara Reed and Warren Carter has highlighted its nature as a song of protest. So, mm. so um so that was where I kicked off and then I started to look, well, what else <laughs> yeah. in, in Australian literature, in, you know, has um, referenced Magnificat and I found poets, you know, the, mm. using it. And then I ex for the poetry section I expanded it because there was a lot more from North America that was really interesting. Mm. So mm. I, I sort of cheated and went <laughs> a bit sideways. Um, and then there was this, um, I guess, an abstract expressionist work by Stanislaus Rapitek, a, a post-World War II migrant to Australia, um, that was, um, yeah, that mm. was called Magnificat Three, and it was part of this um, triptych. Mm. Um, so that, that ends with, um, so he's got Curie, Magnificat Three, Dionysius. So it's, mm. it's sort of a cross-cultural, cross-religious. Um, references in the mm. in the three pieces um yeah so <coughs> so and I I had to I had some sense of how to read the the literary works but but had to sort of think about more how to look at an artwork um and then I went to then then I was you know listening to Bunrong Elder's um I started to think about, well, how do you read it on country? And then it became, it, it got, it was, became more difficult because I wanted to do a consultation, but for various reasons, some of them my own, my own fault, but also um, various reasons and, and people having surgery and all sorts of things intervened and that didn't happen. Um, so, so I had to think about how to, as a settler, um, you know, descendant of settlers, white settler person in Australia on stolen land um, in what is still invasion um, that we haven't, um, when we haven't treat, got treaty yet, you know, we haven't got past continuing as colonisers in this country. Um, and so much of what we do, um, especially if we're able to feed and clothe and house ourselves, is based on this, this ongoing theft and, and dispossession and, um, you know, ongoing racism in this country also. So I was thinking about how do I really sit in that space without being appropriative? Um, and so that was, that was where 
I started to think about, well, what parts of the story can I tell and what parts do I re refrain from? And so, um, so yeah. So yeah. And there's also a growing sense of asking permission anytime you use Indigenous writers' work or allude to it um, so that you're not misrepresenting it. So there was a little bit in Chapter 2 that I had in and when I asked um, the person whose work I was referring to if I could, they said, oh, yeah, I did publish that. I suppose it's in the public domain and you could, you know, technically write about it but I'd really prefer you didn't. Mm. So I took it out. Mm. Um, so part of that is what I would – so as I went along, I developed an approach, the hermeneutics of mm. – um, I thought about, oh, that's kind of a hermeneutics of restraint, of yeah. things you don't say. And ideally, the flaw in the book is that ideally a book like this would have been a collaboration mm. with an Indigenous scholar or an Indigenous um, a First Nations writer mm. um, working with biblical text in some way. So, so, but I think it's okay to do things that are partial and open up yes. that there's more to be done. Mm. So that's probably enough from me in one no, go. That's great. And that, that opens up a, a lot of the things I was going to ask about, which is one of it is we want to come to the hermeneutic of restraint in a second, yeah. but about the um, this aspect of unknowing within the, right. within the uh, epistemological frame. So you write early on in the book, um, this is not reception history, nor is it a comprehensive cultural history of the Magnificat in Australia, but a creative engagement that builds on conversations between instances of cultural reception of the Magnificat, Indigenous work by women not directly related uh, to the Magnificat, and the unknowing in settler epistemologies in relation to country. So the conversation and the creative engagement become a form of biblical interpretation. Okay. So I, yeah, I guess I'm curious a bit about, I guess, that aspect of unknowing and I guess how that influenced this idea that you wanted, you know, and you do use country as this mm -hmm. kind of hermeneutic, as this way in, but but are doing so in this kind of a say partial way. So yeah, I yeah. guess I just want to talk a bit about, a bit about that. Mm. I well I suppose it's um I mean I think we can sit down and learn with First Nations, as I'm sure many people have in different ways, and be given opportunities. So in the 90s, I had, and probably early 2000s, I had some opportunities through Aboriginal Catholic Ministry to, say, visit Barma Forest for a Duwami retreat. So, so we in that, that sort of session, you learn a bit about the history of the protests of the Yorta Yorta people, as well as spending time with country by yourself, as well as sitting around the campfire, as well as um, just learning, yeah, different, just a, a different, you know, different things. And also early on as a BINAP partner, we had training that was, I guess, cultural training and things, I mean, just learning very basic things like the rhythms of grief about, about invasion, um, hearing from an elder that um, when I sort of said something about reconciliation, you know, like this, no, solidarity, you know. And so learning what you don't know. And I suppose to me I learned a bit back then 
the voices of young Indigenous writers now are really pushing us to, to recognise a lot more about our our place here and our unset and, and to really unsettle, you know, our sense of what it is um, to live here um, in, in this very difficult, you know, space where where it's um, you know, where people are still dying in custody in incredibly, you know, um, just it's ongoing, um, and and but yet where there's this great groundswell of indigenous voices that are really strong and resilient, and so I think you know at first you can learn a bit and you think you know something, but there is a, but but it's, there's kind of a principled unknowing about being here is is what I'm trying to get at I suppose. Yeah. And that's so really because it's an unknowing, you can't really describe it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's totally. a stance. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm. But as you say, it then feeds into, as you say, those other aspects of, of, of the restraint of, yeah. of what your what parts of the story you're gonna tell, um, what what sources you'll engage with, yeah. you know, the, those kind of things. It does obviously feed out into that in, in that understanding too. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And mm. unknowing doesn't mean not knowing the history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's an obligation to learn the history and to witness to it, mm. but not to not to act as if you know cultural things or mm. know even you know if you're paying attention as an eco poet or someone engaged with the land, um, not to think you actually know what things mean. Mm. So that's the sort yeah. of thing. Um, you, you have a line at, at one point where you talk about, you know, that kind of critique of white ecological work, which often, you know, itself perpetuated this idea of we've discovered kind of concepts of mm. how we should relate to the land that that were well and truly present and developed within Indigenous yeah. communities and, and knowledge systems. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So the book also, so you engage the book as a poet and a biblical scholar, mm. you're right. And uh, I'm curious particularly with the poet part, um, there's a few things I'm thinking there, but one, again, how that, I guess, connects to the, the hermeneutics of creative imagination that you talk about and this need for creative writing to turn the breath, uh, to, quote, okay. to turn the breath towards mm. empathy and resistance. So I'm curious about how, how do you think yeah, your, your work as a poet plays into this broader... Mm desire to see, and what you want to see in, in, in <laughs> biblical studies, even for those who aren't poets, right, what, what we're trying oh, yes. to see in yeah. the work. Yeah. Well, I, I think, well, yeah, there's a lot in that question. Um, I wish I could write something that turned the breath, you know. It's, it's for the reader to say. Um, but, but I think, I mean, that bit about turning the breath comes from Paul Salan, who was um, a post Holocaust poet, post-Shoah poet, and um, and if you don't, his poetry is just amazing. And in this essay, he talks about he says poetry goes the way of art, um, and he talks about and, and perhaps its its purpose is to turn the breath. Mm. So he talks about an art and vendor, a breath turn, and there's a whole sequence of poems called Breath Turn, and. It, I guess it's a bit like, well, I remember reading one of Deborah Bird Rose's chapters 
in her book, Reports from a Wild Country, and it was describing how religions in some remote communities had imposed themselves. This is in the 20th, late 20th century, mm. and like built, built, say, a church on an old burial ground on purpose. Mm. And it was very, it's quite complex, the, the whole story of that. But I got to the end of the chapter and I found I was holding my breath. And I spoke to Deborah about it at one point and she said, I wrote it so that would happen. Mm. So I'm, I think people, you recognise when a piece of writing does it. Mm. So it's not going to be everything. And I don't know that this does it. I mean, it's just that, that there's a sense in which it would be great if, you know, like great poems engage your body. You know, they, yeah. they, they leave you breathing differently. And, and, and poetry has a really interesting connection to the breath because of its spaces and line endings and things like that. But I think, you know, a piece of really insightful scholarship can do it too. Mm. Mm. So the bit about creative imagination, that's from Schussler Fiorenza. I mean, she has these feminist hermeneutics and one of hers is creative. And I do reference her in there. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. me. No, no. So, so I... <laughs> So, I mean, she she's well worth returning to. And I think mm. it's really interesting that that the critiques say of that that's coming out about ecofeminists um uh, or eco-philosophy in some respects from from some indigenous scholars that that we haven't acknowledged where mm. where some of the ideas of interconnectedness and kinship and and, and various notions have come from. Um when you look back at Shusofia Renz's work, she does acknowledge a whole lot of scholars of colour mm. um, in, in her development of the notion of kiriaki. So, so I, I think, you know, including, you know, Bell Hooks, um, yeah. who's one of the early ones. Um, but so I, th and yeah, so I think mm. that hermeneutic circle that Shusofia Renz works with can be adapted to, to other forms beyond mm. Or not, or including, but not simply feminist hermeneutics. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And always have to have suspicion there. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just it can't yeah. jump that step. No. Um, so talking, uh, change the magnific Magnificat itself. So yep. as you mentioned earlier, you know, recognizes this kind of song of protest mm. um, has these great reversals, right? That 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 draw mm. so many to it. That the the mighty be cast down off their thrones, the rich sent away empty. Yep. And so we often, you know, folks love to love to gravitate toward mm. it and hold it as this rallying cry. But one of the interesting things you point out is that the reversals of the Magnificat are only sensible after the imposition of colonization. Right, you don't need these reversals if the song is not being sung by Mary, a, a woman under imperial colonization. Um, you know, enforcing mm. upon them, they're not going to be a rallying cry necessarily in these lands now called Australia if the invasion project is not still well and truly under un, underway. Um, um, yeah. So, so, so yeah. Go on. Oh, no, no, so, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that the reversals come within the colonial apparatus, right? So the colonial apparatus comes and brings mm. the Bible as part, as a tool, as a mm. resource, as, a, as, as, you know, part of that thing 
And then within that, yes, are these reversals, which we cling to and love. But in some ways it's like better know Magnificat, (laughs) better know Mm. context in which it's required. And so I'm wondering whether then there's a tension to, yes, how, you know, that we find life and hope and resilience and grit in those reversals, in that script, in that um, poem and song, um, but that we also acknowledge that it comes, th- that's there because of this b- much broader context, which, mm. you know, we wouldn't wish upon anyone. Well, I think in that sense <clears throat> you could say that about the Bible itself mm. mm-hmm. in terms of, it, I mean, it means many things in this con context it it came as um you know a material artifact of the colonizers whether the stories got here earlier is a bit unclear because they might have come through intermittent trade in north and western australia various Mm, christian mm. or religious stories may have arrived Mm. earlier i've only heard anecdotal evidence about some of that but so I don't know um at all um but but I think yeah I I mean it's just so complex because there there are many Indigenous Christians for whom the Bible stories are really the Bible Mm. itself and the stories are really important and they've been enculturated Mm. into local First Nations Mm. traditions so so it's but yes and and I don't know I just think it I mean I'm quite I respect that it may it's something Mm. that you might want to reject Mm -hmm. as totally colonial Mm. I mean as as a as a symbol and as an artifact um I just don't think there's one simple answer to that. Mm. And so the the text itself, and, and the thing about the reversals is that they're not great in themselves. I mean, they just, there's, an, there's one way of seeing them as reinforcing the imperial project by just turning it. Right, yep. Turning it around, but still using the same language. Mm. So, so Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. I think we, that, that's. I think that's important. That comes across in in, in the work definitely that it is yeah. complex, and that's where that yeah. suspicion comes from. And and recognizing Kiriaki, it's like that yeah. you can't just go like, oh yes, it's this entirely this thing of resistance. Um, no. but that that there's obviously potential for it and parallels. Mm. Um, but yes, it's 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 not something that's just easily you got, you got to acknowledge that it all comes together, right? I think as you right. said, as, as you're saying, yeah, yeah, and. Mm. Um, yeah, and so I respect people who didn't want their work talked about in the book because mm. they don't see themselves as religious in a Western yeah. kind of way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I guess thinking with the Magnificat, it, you know, how do you feel it does, you have this quote in the book, reconfigure the learned desire of the will of white possession, uh, which is like you wrestle with a lot, you know, you wrestle with a lot in the book. But so, yeah, how does how do you think the Magnificat helps with that reconfiguring? The Magnificat or reading it? Oh, the reading I, of it. I'll let you go with both. Well, <laughs> I don't either. think 
the Magnificat itself yep. does that. Mm. I mean, I think it's how we read. Cool. Yeah. Perhaps. And it's how we approach texts or our being in this place. Um, so I I suppose I wouldn't see it as, yeah, a particular text in itself. Um, it's um, about being open to, to rethinking. So I guess one thing that's going through my head is what I tried to do with one of the poem responses, mm. the one where I set Mary and Elizabeth in the Western Australian wheat belt and tried to, to incorporate some of the colonial history of my own family or, you know, ancestors mm. um, without... So important thing to try and not do is to not keep putting in the, not keep copying or reproducing the trauma for yeah. of what happened um, or not without shifting things. So originally I stopped that before the coda, that piece, and the mm. coda says she stops, she listens. And that's really important that that piece ends up with the white protagonist listening. Mm. And that's where the book ends too, mm. I think. And, and you think of Duncan Reid's new book, you know, it's time we started listening. Mm. Um, so I, I think, um, I mean, the process of writing it was unsettling because I had to grapple with, questions about what I could do, mm. Um, mm. Uh, who I um, and what I hadn't been able to do, like the collaboration part, because the difficulty with collaboration is um, it's better if we're asked mm -hmm. to collaborate mm -hmm. as, as non-Indigenous yep. scholars rather than imposing it yet again on mm -hmm. um, people who might be much more, you know, who have other, because yeah. our interests aren't necessarily the mm. the primary interest. So, um, yeah, mm. I, I think it was good to be in the uncomfortable space. Yep. Yeah. So how how was that process of, you know, with, with your own poetic writings and, and, and yeah. reflections? Like, so some of them you were returning to, ones that had been done before and... and um, yeah. And, and so, so, so I guess... I know. Considering them within yeah. this broader project, right? Yeah. Um, how, how, how did you find that? How do you feel that spoke into the other well, sections of the book? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, I mean, it was interesting. Obviously, I've been hanging around this text for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because when I did a little chapbook that was a fundraiser for um, all the poems in it were connected to the Magnificat. Mm. Um, I mean, that's what I did. And I had one called Glory thinking about the idea of glory um, mm. or it was meant, I don't know if I called it glory in the end, but um, so there were little bits of those got in. The the other poems, so the, the one at the end of Chapter 2, the main one, it was actually related to that chapter from early on, I think, mm. or it was, it came after the chapter anyway. Um, perhaps it was for a project on um, to end all wars. There was a, a collection came out. Um, 
and the others. So some of them are kind of visual things too that that sort of. So when I was saying about the problematics of the magnificent, one of the visual things just cuts out some of the words and you get in it the remember mercy part, but the other one is empty power Mm. when it cuts out other words. Mm. So it's they're meant to sort of echo the abstract expressionist part of the 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 abstract expressionist work, but But, but comment on the text. Mm. So I, they would kind of be seen as perhaps visual poems. I don't mm. know. Um, and then I suppose another thing that has exercised me in recent years because we were whistleblowers in the 90s in relation to our parish um, with um, too late, I mean not too late but later than we should have been, um, about a priest who was an abuser. And, um, and and so I've been exercised in recent years post the Royal Commission with the power dynamics involved in that as well as, I mean, obviously the primary issues of abuse but also the cover-ups yes. that, and the power dynamics. And that so that comes in to the book too mm. um, because I think it's very hard to read the Bible in Australia without being aware of yeah. of that context also. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Have I strayed away from your question? No, no, this is all, yeah, this is all very pertinent. Mm. I guess, I guess, yeah, just thinking about, you know, as you even say, just, just reading it in that way, that looking for those, those words, those phrases, those things that open it up, that unsettle mm. us, you know, is very much part of that um that getting rid of that will for white possession, getting you know, yeah. is, is by letting oneself be unsettled and and um, and opening up to the different narratives and yeah. voices. Mm. Well, look, I I think that it's a lifetime's work mm. getting un- because we're so um, it, it's like patriarchy. I mean, patriarchy is just so resilient. You know, mm. it just bounces back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think our possessiveness in this place is just so ingrained yeah. um, and our entitlement is, is mm. so ingrained that mm. that it, it's something we have to conscientiously undo. Yeah. Um, and if by not seeing the Magnificat as this triumphant-sounding piece but as as coming at from as a a protest song from someone who well probably wasn't a slave but is identifying with enslaved peoples um, in some way. Um, I mean, I think that's still problematic. You know, Mary calling herself a slave when she probably wasn't a slave. You know, in, in mm. but it's it's sort of yeah. Um, I mean, these are just all things we've been taught to think about yeah. now. Yeah. Um and yeah. So um I just think there's lots that we can do. Mm. And and I suppose I also want to push that that explorative kind of biblical studies mm. that goes across these boundaries is biblical studies. It's yeah. it's a way of, you know, so sure you you hang a bit of it on um 
literary reading and on historical criticism and what, you know, commentators have found. But and, and obviously reading the, the, the primary texts. Mm. But, but I think, you know, we really need to, to, to um, work between cultures you know, our contemporary culture and the ancient cultures and of the text, you know, yeah, and yeah. and um, and open up what what it might be without necessarily seeing it as normative for anyone's faith. I mean, I know it is normative for some people, but but not making yeah. that the the kind of god. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, so, but yeah. I know some people it is. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's. That's really great and, and very um, helpful. And I, I really appreciate that kind of concept, you know, that it's a long process. It's not like it's a solved by like, yeah, here's the yeah. one declarative statement of how you read the Magnificat in Australia. It's it's uh, uh, the long work. Um, so earlier you mentioned, you know, Chapter 2 considers the Magnificat in, in context of conflict. And, and so you're drawing yeah. in this settler story from 1939, uh, mm-hmm. but then also you use that to kind of move broader move mm. to a less anthropocentric concept mm. uh, of the conflict that we're in now and, and you draw in this concept of entanglement yeah. um, and, and your own ecologically oriented rewritings of the Magnificat. Yeah. So could you talk to us a little bit about your your work with the Magnificat and, and you know, ecological, hermeneutics, ecological theology, yeah. how, how the Magnificat helps, serves that end, I guess, to some degree. Okay. I, I suppose, um, yeah. I mean, when one thing that was going through my mind when you were talking before in terms of that is using an ecological hermeneutic with an ear to the Magnificat, with, with an ear to an ecological sort of hermeneutic and looking at the Magnificat, it makes it kind of clearly there are no other animals referenced in the Magnificat mm-hmm. and the land isn't referenced directly. But if you hear Abraham Isaac, you know, Abraham and, you know, mm. descendants yep. and the, and the um, covenant, you know, the promise, covenant, then land is there. So for, for a first century audience, the land would have been just, mm. you know, mm. it, even if it's, it can be occupied land, but yep. it's still there in mm. the, it, so, um, now I think it's is it Alan anyhow there's now I've forgotten but I think it's Alan Davis um, makes the argument you know that the twelve all of those um, references in the New Testament uh, yes. you know the land is there um, yes. let me just see if it is oh, that's not in there so I'm not sure now I've forgotten the reference but but there's a scholar who makes a very good case. Mm. For, mm. for the references to the 12, really reminding people of the yeah. land yeah. so that the land isn't absent in no. in the New Testament, which used to be set or Second Testament. You know, it used to be, you know, it was there in the, in the Hebrew Bible but not in the Second New Testament. So it's there. Um, also when, you know, and this is probably stretching the actual text, but when you hear generations, you don't have to just hear human generations now. Generations is more than human, you know. It's mm. it's other creatures. Mm. It's the whole, 
I mean, I don't think we have to stick with a first century reading of a word like generations because we have a different understanding of our generation, you know, if you want to call it evolutionary or, you know, cosmically. Um, So so I think things like that give you a way into texts that don't directly reference Mm. so-called ecological, you know, (laughs) ideas. Um, And then... And then you can think about who who are the poor now, who are, yeah. you know, who's who can't eat. If mm. someone's habitat is totally destroyed by, you know, million, billions of creatures lost their habitats in the fires. So, yes. so you know, who even if you're going with a, a linear kind of reading of reversals, they don't have to just be about humans. So I guess one of the poems... One of the things I'd written a while back was sort of trying to push that a little bit. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. So, but I'd want to read it with the grain of the text and and somewhat sideways to the grain of the text, both, mm. not just choose one or the other. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that. So I guess... Okay, a moment ago I said <laughs> it's not a simple process. But yeah. I, 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 I'm just curious, if you were to say to someone, if, you know, someone is soon to preach on the Medificat <laughs> or someone's Bible study or, or mm. personal devotional reading plan is just about to turn that page, right. um, you know, obviously they're going to go and get the book and read the book. That's We're all going to do oh, that, folks. No, no, so, I don't expect uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you had, you know, one kind of, not a closing word, but an opening word for folks to consider as they look at the text again that's come from your engagement, your rich engagement here. What what would you be offering people in that kind of context? All right. I would suggest, and I did do this when I was talking about the Magnificat to a group of um, Anglican clergy down in Gippsland, I think the year before last, obviously. Um, Couldn't have been last year (laughs) because we were going nowhere in the middle of the year last year. Um, So... um, I think I would say that it pushes us to listen to the voices of women mm. who are protesting now. So like Kathy Jetchill Kijner, the poet of the Marshall Islands, who writes about climate change and the, the nuclear mm. threat, you know, damage that's been done there. Um, people like Natalie Harkin here um, and, and any Indigenous woman First Nations woman poet, um, mm. Janine Lane, Natalie Harkin. I mean, they're, they're, they're to, don't just listen to the Luke and Mary. Listen to the women who are doing this now. Um, and, and really, you know, there are so many mm. women writing their own poems, songs of protest mm. that are potent and that we really do need to hear. Mm. So that would be my takeaway. Mm, I appreciate that. That's, that's great. And I think, you know, it's interesting even when you think about it, like, you know, with the, the Magnificat drawing on such a, on its own rich cultural tradition, mm. right? The, the, the songs yeah. of Miriam, song yeah. of Hannah, you know, that's mm. already inbuilt in what yeah. comes to us um, mm. here. And so, you know, if anything, that should encourage our own process of, of, of listening to the the songs and the forms mm. around us and, and how yeah. they shape you know how we how we approach such a work, yeah, yeah. Mm. and that our own writing can build on rich traditions. Yes. Yeah. 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 
Well, thank you for that. And thank you for this conversation. It has been wonderful. I'm, I'll close and then I'll ask if you have anything to plug, but I was going to read this as a final encouragement to folks. Uh, this is from toward the end of the first chapter. Just an encouragement again. This book lays out a creative reading approach whereby a counter-colonial eco-aesthetic hermeneutics is performative, enacting conversations between Indigenous women's writing and art cultural receptions of biblical texts and the biblical texts themselves, producing creative responses to those, these conversations with a view to inviting and enabling ethical responses to the legacies of colonisation in the present. Mm. If that's not an encouragement and an invitation to pick up the book or get your library to get the book in, yeah. then I don't know what is. So the book, Reading the Magnificat in Australia, Unsettling Engagements, a chef, out now with Sheffield Phoenix Press, and Elvie, thank you for joining oh. us. Is there is there anything else you want to draw our re- our listeners' attention to? Oh, um, a different book. Great, let's do it. So, um, this project I was involved in um, that ended up with the Earth at Peace conference, mm-hmm. or not ended up, but had the Earth at Peace conference um, uh, in April. 2019 had it had a book edited by Joe Camilleri and Deborah Guess came out of it a scholarly book mm. but I am just finishing reading through the proofs of this collection of based on so I don't know if you can see it cloud climbers I'm just reading for the podcast so, folks there <laughs> okay so cloud climbers oh it's podcast okay. it's both 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 so. okay Cloud Climbers, Declarations Through Images and Words for a Just and ecological, Ecologically Sustainable Peace, artworks by William Kelly and Benjamin McCown. I'm the mm. editor, and it has poets, scholars and activists. And basically the framework of the book is about eight or nine images by the artists and poems in response to half a dozen of those images. This was part of the conference. Mm. Um, And then a number of very short essays. Mm. So by people like um, Deborah Storey on her experience in Afghanistan. Um, Oh, and we end up with a prayer by Gary Deverell, um, Gary Werty Deverell that you can, he's online anyway, but, you know. Former guest of the podcast. Yeah, and... (laughs) um, so um, there's a bit of feminist liberation theology in there. There's um, about Catholic nonviolence. Um, um, Sienna Hevea, who may yep. have been one of your guests, has, or if not, Future. you might want to have him have <laughs> as a guest. Um, he has a fantastic essay mm. on AO Cloud um, uh, yeah, in it. Right. Um, yeah, so it's just... Um, it's a short publication, but mm. it should be very attractive um, yeah. and just some a bit of something to read a bit of here and there, not yeah. heavy scholarship. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bedtime, <laughs> you know, read a piece before bed kind of thing. Or else have it on your coffee table. Yes, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Find a little sunny nook. So, well, we might have to yeah. get you on again Actually, I when can that comes stick out. stick it in the... I'll stick it in the chat for you. Great. So that'll be in the show notes, folks, for anyone who's interested yeah. in some more information there. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll get you back on the uh, back on the podcast when it's I can find it. closer to the time. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll email it to you if I can't figure out how to put it in the chat. Sounds great. Where's the it's coming up? Oh, well, so, uh, I don't know. That's all right. 
Well, have you, are we still on? We are. We'll just finish up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, people, people love all. People love the peek behind the screen, the business of how this thing gets done. So that that's that's oh. a thrill for those who, who are listening to the end. So, everyone, and thank you once again for coming oh, on Love Rinse Repeat. It's been just a blast to have you. Okay. Thanks, um, Liam. No worries. And folks, we'll see you all next week.